got some water here. All right, we're live. It says live. It says live. I don't know what this means, but hey. There's still no people. Oh, so. Seth Warner says he's ready. Okay. And I don't know if he's actually joined. Wouldn't it be sad if this wasn't the right link? Can you? Oh, you're on it. I've got another screen over here. Oh, convenient. It's actually my, um... oh, yeah. Oh, he... oh, yeah, one. I see he's there. One viewer. Hey, Serge. Oh, two viewers. We have two. All right. Oh, so I'm going to give it a, a minute yeah, for up oh, three. All right. People are starting to nice. roll in. So not... Oh, look at this. That's fun. Where are you? What? I don't see I don't you. know if you can see it at the bottom of my screen. It says how many. I only, see, I only see you and me. Oh, darn. Oh, well. um, it's okay. Not on mobile. Not on mobile, says Lisa. I don't. YouTube Live should work on mobile. Oh, she can't hear me. <laughs> okay. YouTube Live should work on mobile, but I'll ping her once we get started and help her get in. Um, she might have to sign in. Hey, guys, we're just giving it a second for people to roll in. I don't know how the alerts happen, so just want to get started maybe in about a minute. I see some people are rolling in now. This is new technology for us, so we're not sure exactly what is happening. Oh, I see my, I, that's kind of <laughs> He just sent a screenshot of you. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. That's going to be tweeted. <laughs> <laughs> that's a new meme in the making. Oh, yeah. That would be pretty funny if I, my face ended up on a meme. I, I don't know if that would be a good thing. So just try and pinch it. Get, all right. <laughs> all right, so should we just kick this thing off and let people roll in as they roll in? Sure. Let's do all it. right. So, hey everyone, um, I'm Jen Vargas. I run Just Product, and this is our first Just Product Live. Uh, we have Nils Davis this week, month. He's gonna be talking about the Secret Product Manager Handbook, which is a project he's been working on for a couple of months, years, forever. Um, and <laughs> you'll he, find out, you'll yeah, find we'll out, find out how, how long it's been. Um, he'll be taking us through that, and you can feel free to ask any questions you want in the chat. Um, he'll, if he sees one that he wants to stop right away, he'll stop and answer that. But if not, we'll do a Q&A at the end so you can get any questions you have answered. Um, and we'll let Nils kick it off. Um, that's, yeah, that's it. Go for okay. it. Okay, sounds good, sounds good. So um, I'm actually gonna do this from a, from a presentation, so I'm gonna do a little screen share. And hopefully this will work beautifully. Let's see if I have to find the screen I wanna share. Here we go. And put that into presentation mode. So, uh, as Jen mentioned, I am uh, Nils Davis, and I'm sharing the Secret Product Manager Handbook, some selections. This is really still a work in progress. So, it's really the first public presentation of the material. So, if you've read my blog or seen my podcast or anything like that, you, you'll probably recognize some of it. I'm hoping to launch it for real toward the end of the month. Uh, and, you know, that's, we'll see how that works. And some of, some of that will be affected by the feedback I get today. So what I'm going to talk about today is really the secret product manager handbook itself and what the genesis of that is and including some of my background and, and why that's, why that ties in. Then I'm going to talk about two particular things that are sort of in the beginning part of the secret product manager handbook. One of them is what I call the secret product management framework. I think it's a real useful and actionable way to think about product management. And in case you've ever wondered how much product management is really worth to a company, 
I'll tell you that the business value of product management. So those are the, really the topics for today. When I started product management, there are all these questions hanging over my head. What do I do? I mean, when I started a long time ago, there really wasn't very much knowledge out there about what product management really was. It was just like people knew there needed to be somebody doing something related to that kind of stuff, but there was no guidelines on what it was. Um, and even I know, I know that when people start product management today, they still sometimes have these questions. Uh, what should they be doing? How should they be spending their time? And more importantly, I, th I think how effective am I being as a product manager and how can I become more effective as a product manager? It turns out that product management is, has a really large amount of leverage over the success of the business. I think we all intuitively know that. And so if you can be more effective, that means you can, because you have so much leverage, you can make a really big difference to the business. So anyway, I always thought that there should be a handbook or maybe there was a secret handbook somewhere that other product managers had and I didn't. So over the course of 20 years of doing product management on a whole variety of enterprise software, like an AI development environment, a really great system management tool, some tools for product managers. I had my customers were product managers for seven years, which is kind of cool being the product manager for a tool for product managers. There's one particular thing you learn in that case, you know how we always say, we have to remember that we're not our customer. Well, even if your customers are the same person as you and do the same job as you, you're still not your customer. Every time I talk to my customers, I learn something new about product management or I recognized that they had a different approach to product management than I did. It was very, it was a great learning experience among other things. It was also a great tool. And so as I've gained experience, I've really tried to help give back to new product managers and, and exist and, you know, experienced product managers with my blog and my podcast. And so I've really been trying to provide that sort of secret information that was so hard earned. And the result is that I've now decided to do the secret product manager handbook. So this, provides some answers to those nagging questions that I mentioned earlier. A lot of gut has a lot of guidelines on how to be more effective as a product manager and what that actually means, like from a business standpoint. And it's really all the things I wish someone had told me. So that's the background on the secret product manager handbook. It's really for, as I said, pri the primary focus is new product managers. People are just starting so that they can understand the secret handshakes and the arcane knowledge. But if you're considering product management, I think it's, it's meant to be kind of valuable if you're considering going into product management. So are you suited to it? Do you have the right mental uh, mental state? Do you have the right skills? Are the things you've done in the past good? Are they, do they map well to product management? Um, how do you get the skills that you need to become a good product manager based on where you are? And if you're an experienced product manager, if you're like me, you like to always be learning stuff so you can maybe take new information and then help yourself level up. And so I think experienced product managers will find something of value in the secret product manager handbook. So the topics that, that I'll be covering and the first couple topics we're actually be talking about today in the presentation is what is product management and why do it? This seems like maybe a question that some people already maybe think they know the answer to and maybe you do, but I have a way of describing that that I think is pretty useful. It's a pretty powerful framework for thinking about product management, not about what exactly that you do, but it's not about the activities, but about sort of why you do it and the, the framework of thinking about putting the activities together. And you can even talk for it to use it to talk to non-industry people about what you do in a way that they can understand. This framework is gonna provide an infrastructure for the rest of this uh, secret product manager handbook as well. 
And it also leads into a very concrete and explicit explanation of why product manager product management is important for businesses. And I give you a financial metric even for how important it is. That is an explicit business value of product management. And for each of the major components of the framework, um, I'm going to give you a bunch of techniques, you know, things like how to find and validate market problems, which turns out to be a very significant thing that we have to do, uh, tools for working with developers, how to do prioritization, how to do roadmaps or how my thinking on, on roadmaps, and how to work with marketing and sales, just as some examples of some of the techniques that are in there. And I also have a whole set of topics around how to think like a product manager, what the skills are to be a product manager, um, whether you, if you, to figure out if you have those skills to sort of assess yourself and how to get better at those skills. And then finally, because product management is inherently a very creative activity, you know, we face a lot of the, <clears throat> excuse me, the challenges that artists and writers face, like creative blocks and coming up with new ideas and keeping track of many storylines, so to speak. So the tools and techniques in the Secret Product Manager Handbook will help you manage these challenges. So communication challenges, creativity challenges, collaboration challenges. So that is the story on the Secret Product Manager Handbook. And I'll talk more at the end about what's going on with it in terms of coming out and what the format is and things like that. But essentially, those are all the things that I felt, or many of the things that I felt were missing from uh, information out there about how to how to do product management better. There are a lot of things that I blogged about. So again, you'll recognize some of them if you look at my blog. And I'm also very interested in your feedback on whether A, you think this is a good idea or a bad idea. Um, and also if there's anything you think that I should be covering that I don't that haven't talked about in this topics list. Obviously this is a quick overview and I didn't go into full detail, but I'm very curious for your feedback. So having said that, let's actually move on to this Product manager, product management framework, because I think this is sort of the meat of what I wanted to present today. So, of course, we're called product managers. That's what our name is. And so I'll be talking, there's a lot of discussion about product in the Secret Product Manager Handbook. And I'm assuming this is probably the part of product management that you're most familiar with. And it's mostly, I bet what you've learned about product management is focused around product per se. And things like requirements and user stories and features, whatever term you use, and the backlog and agile development methodologies and whether the product manager is the same as the product owner and releases and roadmaps, those are all things that, are, that come under that sort of rubric or section of product. And you're probably spending a lot of time doing product, right? But I believe that it shouldn't be 80% of your time. It probably should be a plurality of your time, maybe 40, 50% of your time, because there's other things that we should be doing as well. And in fact, what are those things? Well, our products solve problems, right? That's what products do. They solve problems so they address consumer needs or desires. And so a lot of what we have to do is spend time figuring out what those are. And I call it finding a market problem. And I do talk about consumer needs and desires or problems like uh, in, in a bit for business software, we almost always are solving a problem, right? Businesses don't care about needs and desires very much. They care about problems, but consumers care about problems. And so an example would be a Swiffer, which solves a customer problem, but consumers also have deep needs and desires and iPods, for example, 
are a solution to a, a market desire that's music. And there's a deep human desire for music. Obviously, hundreds of products over the millennia have addressed this desire for, for music. So I'm mostly going to talk about a problem, but you can, you can think need and desire as you, as I go along. And since what our problem does, what our product does is solve a problem, I'm going to change the name of this box. I'm going to call it a solution. So our products solve problems. That's a fundamental, that's a fundamental key thing to recognize in this model. And so a big part of our job is to find these market problems, the customer needs and desires. Now, this is because people don't pay you for a product. They pay you for a solution to a problem. And once you've, I am, my slides notes are, have the wrong thing on them. So anyway, people pay you for the solution to a problem. So that's what, that's why you have to find these problems. If you just create a solution to not a problem, that's not a good, a good outcome. And so find, what is finding a market problem involved? It involves market research, going out and talking to customers, to prospects, to competitors, customers, to non-customers, to then figure out what you've learned. And oftentimes that's a weak signal that you have to surface uh, based on a lot of conversations. You have to validate that, what you've learned. And then you have to also make sure that you can actually solve this problem, that you're the right organization to solve it. And you can summarize this. Actually, there's a great acronym called RWW. Is the problem real? Is it worth solving? And are we the people to solve it? And I didn't put RWW in here, but that's a good acronym to think about. And this is not something you just do once. You do this continually. So there's, you're always trying to fill in this funnel of market problems that are both big and small. You know, smaller ones turns into, turn into features. Larger ones turn into new products or into new modules in your existing product or line extensions. You have to always be going out to the market to find and validate these new problems. And this is where, uh, if, if you've taken the pragmatic marketing course, they have this, this little acronym called MIHITO. Nothing important happens in the office, which is actually obviously not true. A lot of important things do happen in the office. But the point is that you can't find problems by staying in the office and talking to your colleagues. You have to go to the market because they're the people with the real problems. And, of course, the point of this funnel is to have a lot of choices of what to do so that you can then choose the best ones based on your prioritization criteria, which is probably based on your organization's strategy. So how do you know if you've done a good job of finding a market problem? Well, you should be able to talk about the problem, the people who have it, and what they're willing to pay for it. You can make a good educated guess about how many of them there are and how big the market opportunity or sort of addressable market is. You should understand how the, your market is solving the problem without your solution before your solution arrives there, whether that's a competitor product or whether it's a spreadsheet or a piece of paper or whatever it might be. And you also have a very good basis for at least part of your prioritization formula, which is, does this feature help solve the problem better? So for feature prioritizations, it's really important to understand the problem. Now, if you have a product that you aren't quite sure what the problem is, well, that's a sign of a, of a potential failure, right? Problems that don't solve, sorry, products that don't solve market problems are unsuccessful. So. In addition to, so that's, that's the finding a market problem and creating a solution for it. But then we also finally need to find and acquire customers. And the, there's part of that that is done by sales and marketing, of course, but there's part of it that's the product management responsibility. And so I talk about that as take it to market. So what do people 
buy. They they buy solutions to their problems. Of course, I said that already. And the purpose of this of a customer is to create. The purpose of a company is to create a customer, as Peter Drucker said. So, what do we need? What do we need to do as product managers to do for go to go to market? Well, because we did the market problem finding, we were the ones who went out and found the problem. We know what the problem is, of course, so we can communicate that to marketing and to sales. We know who has it, so we can tell them who to look for when they go out and prospect. And we know what the alternatives are. In other words, the competitors and the non-competitors, the things that people are using to solve that problem. So we can answer those questions. In fact, it's our job to answer all of these questions so that marketing can go find the qualified prospects and sales can close them with compelling sales pitches and with great objection handling. So that's, that's what our role in the, in the go-to-market piece is, right? So essentially, what's, what are we selling? What's the value proposition? What's the positioning? What's the competitive information? And who are we looking for? And how do we tell them that, how do we make sure that they understand that we have the, the thing that they need? So again, it's all about customers. So what makes a customer? Well, they have a big problem that you solve and they know about it or they find out about it via your marketing or your go to market. And your solution is superior to the competition and to whatever they're doing today. And that's how you get a customer. If you can do those things and you can charge the right price, you can get a customer. So. Summarizing, this is the basic framework. Find a market problem, create a solution or guide the creation of a solution and take it to market. I call this the secret product management framework. It's secret because it essentially goes with the secret product manager handbook and it needed a name. But it's also the fact that no one has really, that I could find, has really expressed it in this way before. And I find this to be a very powerful way of expressing what we do. Now, order is actually not, super significant in this. You certainly have to make sure you're finding a market problem. You're working on a market problem before you build a solution. Otherwise you are likely to fail. But creating a solution actually can happen after you do go to market. In fact, one sign of a really good problem is that you can do some go to market and even make sales before you have a solution or before you can deliver the solution. And uh, there's, a, there's a name for this, it's called a Kickstarter. The whole premise of Kickstarter is, hey, I found a good problem to solve and I propose a solution. Now let me find out if people will pay for the solution even though I haven't made it yet. That's what a Kickstarter is, essentially. And that's why it's really important to keep in mind the, the problem and the take it to market as being so significant in what we do as product managers. And the solution, while it's definitely the most work of all the things that we do, and it's not just us, it's all the developers and whatever, if, if you're making software um, or the, the other people building, but the finding a market problem and taking it to market are equally important from our perspective as product managers. So there are a few more pieces that you have to think about. The basic model I really just shared is this model here is really about our fundamental job, but there's other things that happen in the real world that we need to keep in, in, in mind. And some of them are covered. Some of them I cover in the secret product manager handbook, like the skills I mentioned, you know, we need certain skills and a certain mindset to be successful. Everybody, no matter what their job, is more effective if they have the right infrastructure and tools. So I talk a little bit about infrastructure and tools, and I'm very interested in tools for product managers. So I go into this, I will go into that in, in some detail in the Secret Product Manager Handbook. If you have a team of product managers, you have to think about what's the best way to manage product managers. So for example, how do you measure the output of a product management organization? 
That turns out to be a really hard thing to do, much harder than almost every other organization. And then, of course, strategy is really important. That's coming down from the C-suite. And it guides you in things like maybe which market do you go look for problems in or prioritization of particular features, you know, based on what customer is most important in the strategy or what market segment. And take it to market even as affected by going to market as affected by strategy. So that's that's really the whole full fully fleshed out thing. Now, I also really like this framework because it makes it easy to talk to non-technical people about what you do. So a lot of times people will say, oh, I'm the CEO of the product. But of course, nobody really understands what that means. And, and, it's, and it's really kind of not true anyway, because, you know, we can't hire and fire people. We can't, we don't set strategy as product managers. So I think it makes much more sense to tell your non-technical parents or friends or whoever it might be, I find market problems, I create solutions to those problems, and I take the solutions to market. Because, you know, they understand problems and solutions and customers, and you can even give them examples for each of these things, which you can't do with the CEO one. So I think that's a, it's a really good way to think about product management. Now, I find, as I, as I said, that I find that this structure of thinking about what I'm doing as a product manager is very empowering. I find if I think about the market problems that I'm trying to solve or make sure that I'm that I actually am have a market problem that I'm trying to solve with my with my solution, it makes it much easier to know if I'm going the right direction. And it also, because the take it to market part is in there, it makes me remember that I have to do all those things like what is the competitive, why is this interesting from a competitive standpoint? How should sales talk about it? It's easy for me to understand why it's cool, but can sales articulate why it's cool and why the customer should buy the product because of this feature that I'm putting in? So I think those are, I think it's pretty powerful, that framework. And so I recommend that you take a look at it and see if, see if you buy into it as well. So why did I come up with this framework? Well, as I said, I thought some of the, I thought other things that were out there were not very adequate. And there's two other big frameworks that maybe we can think about comparing it to, like the pragmatic marketing framework and the AIPMM product management lifecycle framework. So if we look at product, the pragmatic marketing framework, it's 37 boxes. They're sort of um, organized by strategy versus execution to some degree. I don't know if top to bottom means much in this uh, layout, but in particular, there's sort of two things that are that are missing in this framework. One is there's no ordering of these activities, and that's actually because you typically will do all of these activities over and over again in the process of getting a product to market. The other is that there's no grouping. And that's, again, that makes sense because you're doing them over and over again. So for example, think about the competitive landscape activity, the activity of mapping and understanding the competitive landscape, right? You're doing that at the phase where you're looking at market problems to determine if a market problem that you found is worth solving, like is are there competitors solving this problem? Or is there a competitor that's got a really good solution so it makes no sense for me to go in there? Is there no competitor, which means it's really good opportunity for me to go in and be the first to market? When you're doing the creating the solution itself, you then can start thinking about things like, well, this feature will help me help me differentiate from that competitor. This feature will help me leapfrog that competitor. This feature addresses a competitive gap that I have. And of course, when you're doing go to market, comp competition is very important. You have to be able to do competitive hit sheets 
and give the salespeople objection, objection handling scripts that talk about competitors and things like that. So that's typical of all of these boxes. They happen all throughout this process and you use them in different ways in different times. So there's nothing wrong with these activities. These are the activities that you do and you probably do pretty much every activity for every product. Some you may do a teeny tiny bit and some you may do a lot depending on how big you, your product is, the type of product, how big your team is. But they're really just the what's. They're not about why and they're not organized into, they don't really give you a way of thinking about what am I doing in the overall picture. Now, the AIPMM lifecycle is a little is a little different. It's really about when, so that it, you can see it's got a it's got kind of a timeline aspect to it. I mentioned that my framework there's a somewhat of a timeline on ordering suggested, but you really are continually doing all those things. Whereas this is really more of a timeline of a product. In some sense, it you don't really see the problem, the market problem, very clearly in here. It does mention customers in the lower area, but it's not quite clear what role they play. And it doesn't talk much about go-to-market uh, either. So this is, that, that's sort of the AIPMM story. So I think I think of the pragmatic marketing framework, of, which is about what AIPM is more about when and sort of ordering. And the secret product management framework is really about the why and the overall organizing principles of, of your product lifecycle. So, that's the framework. I'm really interested in hearing your, your feedback on that. I'm gonna do one quick more thing and then we'll get into some questions and, and answers. So the, this is the, the area where we think about, well, why are we doing product management anyway? I mean, based on the framework, it seems obvious, right? Find market problems, take them to market, blah, blah, blah. So why is this important that there's a, that there's a role of product management, right? Well, it's because product management, the stuff that I just laid out, that's what creates revenue. And there's always product management. There's only a few product managers ever compared to all the other functions in the business, but our influence is really outsized compared to our numbers. And there's always somebody who's doing it. It's someone or it's multiple someones has to do those things for us to have a successful product. In startups, it's often the founder or one or more of the founders. And as you grow, then it's gonna be you're going to hire a dedicated product manager, usually around 20 people. There's going to be a, there'll be a product manager added. And in some companies, it is the dev team, which cannot, which can be a, not a good thing unless they're really good at going out and to talking to customers and finding market problems, which means they're really product managers. And so we have this really big lever. A company that makes products makes money when the products sell at a profit. If they don't sell, then there's no money. Right. So because we're responsible for defining what those products are, those solutions to problems, then we have we have the most influence of anybody on the the growth and success of the of the company. Again, if you're talking about a startup where the where there's no product managers and only founders, same same is true. In their role of product management as founders, they've determined whether the thing that they're they're building is actually a good solution to a important problem. But one of the nice things about, because we're such a small organization, if we get more effective, basically doing the same people, just doing a better job, the benefits go straight to the bottom line. So making us more effective, things like giving us tools, giving us collaboration capabilities, things like that, there's a giant return on investment if you can do that. On the other hand, if our product 
doesn't solve a big market problem or we can't find the right people to buy it, then nobody is going to buy it, right? So there's a sense in which we control the salespeople's lives. In fact, my goal as a product manager is to make it, make my product so good that the salespeople always hit quota unless they're total idiots and drunk all the time. But if they're not total idiots and drunk all the time, I want them to always be able to make quota because my product is good enough that they, that it essentially sells itself. It's solving an important problem. It does it better than the competitors and so on. And if we aren't solving important market problems with our products, then they have no chance of achieving that. And if it, if it fails in the market, it's our fault. So finally, how much leverage do we actually have? Well, in an enterprise software company, and the numbers might be different in other types of companies, typically there's around five to $10 million of revenue per product manager. So in some sense, we're responsible for five to $10 million of annual revenue. If you have a company that has $20 million in annual revenue, it's got two product managers, you bring another product manager on, you're kind of expecting to make $25 million in revenue the following year, or maybe 30 million in revenue the following year. And that's the sort of thing that we're trying to achieve as, as product managers. We're trying to make a lot of revenue happen at the top line. And because it's, again, it's just adding one person or one person doing a better job, most of that goes directly to the bottom line as profit. So that means that product management effectiveness, if you can improve it, there's a big ROI on that, right? So we're worth about five to 10 million in annual revenue. If I'm 10% more effective, if I'm running at that rate and I get 10% more effective, that's 500,000 to a million dollars of additional revenue. Because that, how else will we measure effectiveness of a product manager? That's the only way to measure it. And that's all gonna go to the bottom line. It's all gonna go to profit. So there's, again, that huge ROI in making product managers more effective. So three things that you can do today to sort of put these things into, into practice. Learn this new mantra that I gave you about market problems, solutions, and taking the solutions to market. Take a look at your own situation in your own company. Compare your rev compare uh, the ratio of revenue to product managers. See if it's in that range of five to ten million dollars, and determine if you are, you know, what what you should do based on that. <laughs> you know, do you need more product managers? Uh, do you need fewer product managers? And finally, of course, let me know about what secrets you think should be in the secret product manager handbook because I'm sure that there's lots more to put in there than, than what I've got in there so far. Um, you can contact me via Twitter. I have my blog, which is called pmhardcore.com or Hardcore Product Management. The podcast, all the responsibility, none of the authority that I do with Rob McGordy. Um, coming soon, not there yet, is, the, is a YouTube channel for the videos. So the format of the Secret Product Manager Handbook is actually gonna be videos, which is not really a handbook, but that's the way it is. But I'm on also, probably going to be putting out booklets that are related to the videos. And then that uh, secretpmhandbook.com URL eventually will be a landing page for the Secret Product Manager Handbook. At the moment, it just goes to my my blog. So that is uh, what I wanted to share today. Hopefully that was uh, interesting. I'd love to get your feedback. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Nils. Hold on. Bringing myself back. Oh, hello. I'm back. Um, that was awesome. Thank you. Uh, now that I know I bring in $41,000 in revenue per day, I kind of want to think about my salary some more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's why we're highly paid. True story. Um, all right, so I sent a link in the chat that we have. Turns out there's a different chat 
So uh, you can click that and see what's been going on. Um, if anyone has questions, please throw them in the live chat and I'll That's get them to nil. I got an internal server error. That was kind of funny. It could see. be a bad link. Let's try this. Oh, there we go. Okay. So. Okay. So I think one of the things that came up, it wasn't exactly a question, but does this apply to building things like internal tools? And when your customers ah. aren't necessarily a market that brings money directly. Right. That's actually an interesting question. There's a whole lot of answers that I could give you on, on that. But, but, um, so there's some, there's some ways that internal users are like a market and ways that they're not. Um, in particular, and, and this is really like the difference between IT, uh, building a tool for IT or being an, being an IT developer or a product owner in IT and being a product manager making a product for sale to the, to the open market. When you're building internal tools, you have one customer. I mean, it may be multiple people, but it's one customer and one business process that you have to support typically. Um, now, of course, you do want to be solving problems with that tool, or, you know, with whatever you're building for them. And so this, the process of going out and finding the problems of your internal market, the, you still need to do that. And it still may be multiple. You have to talk to multiple people. You have to may have to do anthropology, observe what they're doing to really understand what their real problems are. But in some ways, it's a little simpler because you don't have multiple different customers that all have their inputs coming in and that you have to try to accommodate with one with your one internal tool. Makes sense. Do you think this framework holds at like all levels of product from junior up through director VP? Or is it more for your mid-level you know, individual contributor PM? I think it's useful for everybody. Um, yeah, I mean, so like if you're, say you're a manager of product managers, well, your job is not to go out and find market problems. Your job is to make sure that your team is going out and finding market problems. Because again, if you're the manager, you're not a, if you're the manager of product managers, you're not a product manager yourself. So your job is managing that team. And what is the most effective thing that that team can do? In some sense, it's finding really valuable problems to solve. And so it, the focus gets a little different, but the goal of the product management function is still the same, finding market problems, creating a funnel of things that are going to keep the business going up and up. Awesome. Um, any other questions? I know there's... So somebody asked, what's the difference between a product manager and a product marketing manager? You so I, I don't see that. I, I see it, yes. Is Serge there a whole asked, other Serge, chat that I haven't seen? Uh, there might be yet another chat. I don't know. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but I can answer that one anyway, if, even though you can't. Although you are, you answered. Oh, yeah. The, you've the answered some of these. latest have not been loading for me. I reloaded. Good thing. All right. Okay. Good thing we're both so, at that. Uh, what's the difference between a product manager and a product marketing manager? So I have a blog post about this, but roughly speaking, my div division is that the product manager is responsible when we get to the marketing side for the value proposition, for the market segment, for the positioning, and for the competitive information, at least at a high level. And the product marketing manager is then responsible for turning that into marketing materials and marketing programs, for going and finding the people that match that segment that I defined, uh, you know, getting them in as leads, I mean, um, and for articulating in a way that's appropriate for the market, what it is that we provide as a solution. Now, obviously I'm happy to have the product marketing manager do other things 
besides that, you know, if they, if they say, Oh, um, I'm getting this feedback from the market about this problem. That's great. But, and, and I, in one sense, I kind of simplified the, the, the idea of finding the market problem to, I, I, I encapsulated it really in this idea of going out and talking to the market. But of course, there's lots of ways to find out about problems. It's not just the market telling you it's, it's, it's customers giving support feedback and it's um, customers complaining about things. And it's also um, ideas that you have, right? You can certainly have ideas about, oh, I think my customers probably are suffering in this way, in X, Y, Z way. You just have to make sure that you go out and validate that um, before you start building a solution to it. Because if you're, if you're, if your intuition is wrong, the customers don't care about that. They just won't buy your thing. All right, now I see all the questions. I want to keep going through them. Um, what's your favorite way or ways to create strong buy-in amongst a team? That's from Seth. Ah, so that's a, that's a really good question. I actually do also have a blog a post about that. <laughs> um, but so I think, you first of all, there's no, I don't think I have a favorite way to, to create strong buy-in. But generally speaking, the, the framework that I use for thinking about this is that people are motivated. The, the, the way that people become motivated is essentially three things. Um, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. This is, um, there's a book called um, Drive by Dan Pink, where he talks about motivation, how people get motivated. And, this, and so since developers are humans, they are motivated by those things. So mastery, autonomy, and purpose. And so one of the things that I want to make sure that the team understands is why I'm asking them to build something, right? So, so in other words, I want them to understand the market problem. And so either, and there's a lot of ways for them to understand that market problem, right? I can tell them, I can say, I went out and talked to customers and I learned this and I validated it and this is the, the problem. Another way is to actually put them in front of customers or let them watch customers and see them suffer. Um, so whatever way you can do that, and that's the that's what I think of as the purpose, right? Um, for the purpose part of motivating in terms of creating a, solu a good solution. In terms of autonomy, that's really about their skills. And so I don't try to, I try not to tell the team how to, how to solve the problem. Obviously I guide them in particular on the boundary conditions, but I don't tell them how to solve it. Now they may come up with thing, something that I don't like and I'll discuss that with them and I'll see if I can get them to change. But, um, you know, so I found that the way that my, the way that I am able to effectively work with my teams is I tell them why we're doing things, but I don't tell them how to, how to do them, how to create the solution to the problem. Hope that, hope that answered the question. I think it did. Well, wait to hear from Seth. Meanwhile, um, Lisa asks, Oh, same with executives or key stakeholders with Seth's response. Right. So key stakeholders is it, and executives a little bit different. Um, which is, so typically with executives and st key stakeholders, it's they have set some kind of strategy, some kind of objectives for the company. And then my goal is to do the product, the, the um, problem finding and so on in the context of that strategy and do the prioritization in the context of that strategy. And then when I present, you know, what I'm going to do, when I present the plan or the roadmap, I'm going to present it in the context of that strategy as well. And if they set, then say, well, what about this other feature that I want you to do or that I asked you to do? 
you know, the, the typical flippant response is, well, what do you want me to take out? Or, or what, how does that, tell me how that aligns better with the strategy than the things I put in. Cause I may be totally wrong about my prioritization. I'm always open to that possibility of being wrong, but I also, and so I always want to understand that I make a, that I make an error in my, in my judgment here. And, and does the executive know something that I don't know about why this thing that they want is a better choice than the thing that I put in. And so, you know, that, that's sort of the, the basic framework, right? Make sure that everybody understands that we're focusing on achieving the strategic objectives, that we're doing that via finding and solving market problems and help me understand why this thing you want me to do is a better version of that than the thing that I, that I already, that I proposed. And why I'm wrong, which is hopefully not the case. Well, you know, I'm wrong. I can be wrong. I don't, I, and I don't, I don't own, I don't own, I don't have a problem with being wrong. I do have a problem with being told what to do when, I mean, I mean, there's, there's, of course, there's always the other opportunity, the other thing, right? Sometimes the executive just wants it and it doesn't align the strategy and you just have to do it. And that's, you know, that's just reality. And you just have to, you know, don't get mad about it. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> I think it's similar to the case where, you know, we are working with developers, designers, et cetera. We don't tell them how to do their job or how to implement the thing that we sort of have outlined. And I think the same is true coming to us. Give me your requirements and let me work within them as much as possible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. So, I, so actually, and, and the way that I define features, or I try to, I have this, this rubric. It's a little complicated, unfortunately, but it has thing. It, it really explicitly says, what is the customer problem that this feature is solving? And how do I know that this customer actually has this problem? You know, how do I, how did I validate it? And there's a bunch of other things in my rubric as well, but that's probably the most important explicit thing that's in there from the standpoint of this model is why, why are we doing this? You know, not just we want to, but because it, there's a specific issue that customers have that needs to be addressed. All right. We have two more questions. Um, one from Lisa, which is what are some major reasons products fail and how can we as PMs prevent failure? Yeah. So I have not done research on this, but my intuition is that the major reasons are first that they don't solve a problem, that they're a solution in search of a problem, that that's the number one reason products fail. And then the number two reason is because go to market is, was not done well. Those are those, I think that if you did research, you'd find that those two things happen. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, and I, I can't give you more details than that. I think, you know, if you, even if you look at a, at a, at a thing like uh, Webvan, the giant failure of the 2000s, right? Um, that was, why did it fail? Well, it, there wasn't, they didn't really solve a market problem effectively and or they did a bad job of taking it, to, taking the solution to market. They built it, they built a pretty good solution, right? And the, you know, it worked, it did the thing that they designed it to do, but not enough people cared to make it work. Or they didn't care fast enough, right? So that's a that's a go-to-market problem. You know, one of the, the the examples that I really like to think about. There's a several specific examples I like to think about in terms of product successes and failures. One of the best product successes examples is Craigslist. Now I don't know if you've ever if you guys have used Craigslist, and I don't know if you used it 15 years ago, but it looks almost the same as it did 15 years ago. It is not a beautiful application, not not a beautiful product. It's in fact it's kind of an ugly product. It's a, it's annoying to use, and yet. It is highly successful. It's got a very small team that make a huge amount of money. 
And why is that? It's because it solves a really, really fundamental problem that people have been trying to solve for hundreds, literally hundreds of years. You know, classified ads have been around for hundreds of years. And Craigslist did a good enough job at addressing that problem quickly to essentially take over that market and put a bunch of newspapers out of business and blah, 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 right? It's not a great product from the standpoint of product design. It's a great product from the standpoint of it solves a really important problem. It does it well, and they took it to market well, and they priced it well, and all that stuff. So it's a great example of, of a product that solves a really important problem. Now, the iPod, of course, is another great product success example. It obviously is solving that really fundamental problem of the desire for music, right, We all that we all have. <clears throat> so why did it win versus all the other things that could play music? Well, that's that's when you when you get into that kind of a competitive situation, then you do have to have differentiators that make your solution better, right? So in every way, an iPod was a better almost every way, an iPod was a better solution for normal people than all the other alternatives, right? It was much easier to use. It was connected to a music store, blah blah blah. So, um, you know, it's it's really useful to think try to think about what how products became successful in the context of this secret product management framework because you can learn a lot. And in particular, the thing you learn a lot about is the product itself, the solution is not as important as making sure you've got a good problem. And I think that kind of also leads into uh, defining success and when um, revenue isn't your main metric of success and how maybe this framework applies there from, uh, I think it's pronounced Efrain. Uh, Should I repeat yeah. the question? Uh, for a startup with no revenue, this would probably not not apply. Oh, so uh, well, so I'm not a big believer in metrics. <laughs> I think there's a, a few metrics that are useful, but uh, generally speaking, don't look for metrics. In my opinion, I have a blog, blog post about this. Just because you can't measure it doesn't mean you can't manage it. In fact, that whole saying. What you can't measure, you can't manage is totally wrong. It's totally the opposite of what Peter Drucker meant when he, when he made his, uh, his line that said, what's measured improves. And his point was to be careful of what you measure. Cause if you measure, th whatever you measure is going to, the people are going to start to respond to that measurement. And if it's not a thing that drives the company in the right direction, it's a waste of time and it probably can be really dangerous. So the point is, <clears throat> depends on what metric the company wants to prioritize. So if, if your startup has no revenue, then revenue is probably not the thing that the, that you're going to be getting a product manager in to increase, except that, of course, you do eventually want there to be revenue. But you might have other, you know, in, in an early stage startup, you might be focusing the product manager on something else. It's true. Although generally speaking, it's always going to be, it's going to be revenue or it's going to be a revenue proxy like um and, and hopefully something that's pretty close to generating revenue, like number of signups, number of continual, continuing users, things like that. Um, number of eyeballs that you can show ads to, something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is true that every company starts with no revenue by definition, but that's usually not the end goal. And particularly once you get up into around 20 people, particularly if you're a, more of a bootstrap type of company, you better be making revenue. That does help. Cool. All right. Well, that's all of our questions and also 
about our time, so that worked out perfectly. I would oh. say everyone give Nils a round of applause, but that doesn't work on the internet. <laughs> um, I just sent his Twitter handle to the chat, so be sure to tweet your applause um, for him. And thank you very much. This was awesome, very informative. I think that some feedback already came in for you about um, some of the topics that stood out and some other questions that people had. So, oh, there you go. You have some slash claps happening. Um, and oh, nice, slash yeah. clap. So we have cool. virtual claps here. I'm clapping on their behalf. Um, so thank you so much for this, and we can't wait to see what the actual handbook turns into. Yeah, me too. I'm looking forward to it. What's your <laughs> deadline? Every every goal needs a deadline. Uh, yeah, I'm. That's um, I'm aiming for the end of the month. Oh, it, that's soon. Okay. But 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 it's just going to be the first. It'll be the first four little short videos. The what I presented today is actually three of the videos: the intro, the framework, and the business value of product management. Those are three. Of, those are th those are three videos, and there'll be one more that I hope to get done. Uh, for the end of the month. Nice. And so I think the first, the first one is done, but um, yeah, the rest of them still have to be recorded. They're they're mostly written in terms of scripts, but they have to be recorded. Well, just don't release it on April 1st. Worst mistake ever. Oh, good idea. That's a good reminder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will not do that. Great. Thanks, All right. for, thanks, thanks for the claps, everybody. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so as for going forward, we already have our next two talks lined up um, next month. April 12th, we're going to have Tim Freitas, who's worked at Amazon, DigitalOcean, um, Giphy, which we all use and love. Um, he's going to be talking about building the best product roadmap for your team. And then in May, we have Kristen Womack. Um, that's going to be May 17th. And she's going to be talking about product analytics. So I'm posting in the chat right now the link for next month's RSVP. And um, I'll also be sending that out in the newsletter and that sort of stuff. But thank you so much, everyone, for joining and for listening and for bearing with our initial tech questions as we figured out this new live stream. Next month will be super smooth now that we know. And see you then. Thanks a lot, Jen. Thanks for setting it up. Thank you. All right. Bye, guys.